A war without bullets. The Chinese regime has a strategy to win without fighting, to destroy a country from within. In this special report, we look at how the Chinese regime uses unrestricted warfare, how that's playing out in America, and how lives are already being impacted. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. A war with no rules, known as unrestricted warfare. But what exactly does that mean? Unrestricted warfare was the name of a you know, paper written by two former Chinese colonels. And it, it laid out an idea of warfare that has no restrictions, anything goes. To understand the role of unrestricted warfare, it's important to take a look at history, going back three decades. And in the Gulf War, the United States and the coalition partners uh, demonstrated devastating capability to use combined arms. Everything was brought to bear, and it was a crushing defeat for the Iraqi army, which was one of the largest militaries in the world. That's Kerry Gershanik, professor and author of Political Warfare, Strategies for Combating China's Plan to Win Without Fighting, and Media Warfare, Taiwan's Battle for the Cognitive Domain. He notes how that victory really caught the attention of the Chinese Communist Party. After 1991, the Gulf War uh, victory, the PLA and the CCP put a lot of effort into studying how the U.S. and the coalition partners won such a devastating victory. PLA is short for People's Liberation Army, the official name of China's military. CCP refers to the Chinese Communist Party. But as for why the Chinese regime wanted to learn from the Gulf War? The ultimate goal even then, as we, we well know, was to, to move the United States aside, not just move it aside as the, the world hegemon, to use their terminology, uh, but to, uh, to take that place and actually to destroy, defeat the United States of America. Eight years later, in 1999, two colonels in the People's Liberation Army published a book called Unrestricted Warfare. To achieve the goal of overpowering the West, Joshua Phillip, host of Crossroads and senior investigative reporter with the Epoch Times, explains. You know, the CCP can look at America and say, okay, we can't meet them on a, in a head-on you know, head-on-head head battle, but we can conquer them through other means. And so basically create the standards of conquering another nation uh, through, through non-military means. For example, uh, foreign investment for the Chinese Communist Party is regarded as a type of, you know, strategic uh, tool. And so for the CCP, this is warfare. Media is warfare. Psychology, how you interpret information is warfare. Uh, legal battles are warfare. While the book notes 24 different kinds of unrestricted warfare, the Chinese Communist Party officially adopted three of them. Those three are media warfare, psychological warfare, and legal warfare. Gershanik describes how that's been playing out. We've seen uh, in the past three decades uh, the most incredible uh, pillaging looting of intellectual property and just stealing of data and, and hundreds of billions of dollars worth um, military technology, uh, commercial technology and, and, and information stolen off of uh, corporate computers and financial institutions. Philip adds examples of how that's been integrated in America. 
if you look at every single part of what makes a country function, of what makes a nation, whether it's businesses, whether it's academics, whether it's, you know, uh, let's say our institutions, whether it's, you know, politicians or influencers or media personalities even, uh, the CCP has methods to target them. And for them, this is warfare to conquer another nation through non-military means. To help shed light on the subject, Philip helped the Epoch Times create an infographic called China's Secret War on America. That infographic goes piece by piece and lays out all of those strategies, culture warfare, drug warfare, smuggling warfare, resource warfare, industrial warfare. Uh, it gets into d three different categories of war, non-military, which is like businesses and you know culture, Hollywood, things like that. Uh, Trans-military, which is a mixture of non-military and military, like cyber attacks, for example. And then unconventional military. Tactics, systems they would use if a real like you know shooting war were to ever take place with the CCP. And that's things like biological warfare and so on. It also maps out the four stages of subversion needed to overthrow a government from within starts off on demoralization. You break the will of a country. You make a country stop functioning as it's meant to function. You infiltrate their institutions. You co-opt their businesses. You make their big tech companies, you know, serve the favor of a foreign country. As an example of that, Philip notes. Nike and these other companies, for example, where they're criticizing America and damning us based on our history, right? Criticizing us, while at the same time they're using slave labor in Xinjiang and China. And they don't, they don't dare criticize that right? It's things like that. Demoralize them, break their will, criticize them, wear out their infrastructures, make the people feel hopeless. That's demoralization. The second stage is destabilization. Philip points out how through that channel, you make their systems stop functioning as they're meant to function. Uh, you can look at the CCP's influence, for example, in some of the different, uh, you know, grassroots organizations in the U.S. that have played roles in creating instability inside the United States. Um, you look back at the different Maoist organizations uh, going back to the 1970s leading up to today. Once a country has been demoralized and destabilized, the third step is conflict. Eventually you enter a state of chaos where people are, or conflict where people are fighting on the streets, where, where you know there's really no essential rule of law, where you've made it so the country can no longer have any kind of rule of law or harmony among its people. You've broken all the bonds that create a nation, right? Racial harmony, religious harmony, political, you know, politicians actually serving the functions to protect their citizens rather than serving foreign interests, for example, those kinds of things. Once a state of chaos is achieved, what's left is intervention. Eventually it gets so chaotic that people begin demanding some kind of change. They can no longer live like that. Society no longer functions. The institutions no longer work as they're supposed to. They, you know, they've been taught to criticize and think badly of everything about their country, whether it's the culture, the history or the current system, and they begin demanding a new system. And finally, and from that they move in, and that's what they call normalization. And normalization is where they institute a new form of government, often bringing policies that people would never normally accept. One major part of the Chinese regime's strategy is what's known as the United Front. The United Front Work Department is it's a branch of the Chinese Communist Party, first of all. Uh, Mao Zedong called it the magic, one of the magic weapons of the CCP. And 
The United Front Work Department is a system, a government agency, meant to infiltrate foreign countries, establish networks of influence, and co-opt the leadership or influencers of that country. And how is the United Front functioning as the CCP's magic weapon? United Front works through what they call tongs. Tongs are like fraternal organizations, guilds, uh, family name associations. These tongs are like the unofficial governing bodies of Chinese communities. I mean, some are good, some are bad. Uh, they're not all the same. The United Front targets them. They gain control of that entire network, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, depending what it is. And as an example of the United Front in action. And so they might, for example, go to your local city council member and then do something as simple as inviting them on a trip back to China. He goes on a trip to China, comes back and starts going on TV, talking about how great the CCP is. Behind the scenes, of course, there's been things done to co-opt that official gradually. Sometimes it's through, let's say, uh, blackmail. Sometimes it's through money. Sometimes it's something as simple as just gradually changing their perspectives. And part of changing people's perspectives is done through media warfare. Everyone's got their face in their, their iPhones. Everyone's on uh, a different social media platform. And so the, um, the cognitive warfare coming at us through uh, the, 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 the online, uh, through the internet, uh, the way that's bombarding us through deep fakes, the way it's uh, bombarding us through disinformation, propaganda, um, and, and it's, it, it's done in such a way that a lot of people don't even know that they're doing it. Examples of that include some of the biggest platforms in social media. The PRC even uses TikTok uh, video games and other video games because so many of the video games are developed in the PRC as indoctrination tools. Those video games that are being played by five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds uh, that are propagandized, and then of course the much more sophisticated ways that they reach out to the grown-ups, the, the the teens, the college students, through uh, online sources. Uh, that's particularly troublesome because they're reaching billions of people at a time. But it's not just social media, it's also traditional media. Philip notes the Chinese regime can. People make media partnerships with mainstream media, where media can't report negatively about certain things against the CCP, or they get punished. Again, media co-opted to an extent. Look at, for example, the Chinese Communist Party doing paid inserts in most American newspapers. But out of all the different warfares, Gershanik explains which one is most dangerous to America's freedoms. Elite capture is a key term that people should understand because that's, that's when the CCP comes in and buys off the United States of America's elites, our entertainment, Hollywood, which has a notorious reputation for kowtowing to Beijing. Gershanik goes on to describe how elite capture targets all levels of society. Part of the elite capture is getting members of Congress. And we know of some high visibility cases where members of Congress have been literally sleeping with the enemy, sleeping with PRC agents and honey traps. It's not just government. Elite capture is winning over the tycoons that run our, our most uh, well-known financial institutions in America those those people in order to get their what they perceive to be their piece of the chinese pie that you know if we could just get one dollar from every one of those 1.4 billion people in the people's republic of china you know that, that we'd be rich you know that that goes back a couple of centuries and that dream never materializes now the way to counter that isn't to become the same as your enemy 
Gershanik says it's the opposite. His education always is. Um, we have to play by the rules. We don't, we're, we're not going by unrestricted warfare on, on our side of the fence, which you know, limits us, of course. But to play by the rules in a democracy, you have to have an educated citizenry. You have to have educated elected officials, educated military officials. As for how to become educated, Philip notes. We need to start regarding everything the CCP does as it is, as the CCP says it is, which is a type of warfare. As an example, Philip highlights the Confucius Institutes popping up on campuses around the country. Things like the Confucius Institutes going into American universities and American schools, paying them to let the CCP go in and create classrooms and teachers and so on, you know, bring teachers in and so on. The schools don't have to pay money. The CCP pays them to let them do it. And they go in there and they spread the ideas of the CCP and they indoctrinate our students, our future leaders, our future military leaders, our future business leaders, our future politicians. But it's more than just Confucius Institutes. You know, the Chinese Communist Party, is that its goal, as it's clearly stated, you can read any of their military documents, is to overtake the United States as the world leader. They don't try to hide this. They regard the United States as the biggest impediment to the CCP's goal. They want to destroy the United States. They don't even try to hide it. And he says because the CCP's goals have been stated so clearly. People who go along with this are part of that. They're playing the role in a foreign war against the United States, and it needs to be understood as such. Experts warn just how pressing the threat is. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and a lot of attention is focused on that. We have to be put double effort, triple effort into making sure that we don't take our eye off um, PRC expansionism in Asia, the, the, their stated objective to, to annex Taiwan, but then expand out into Oceania, the Pacific Islands, take you know, what they can take there, but also expand uh, globally, which was the intent to be a global hegemon, not just a, not just a regional hegemon. In the face of Beijing's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific and around the world, how does the U.S. as a nation begin to counter that kind of threat? And what can citizens do to support the effort? Get educated. Um, start organizations at the grassroots level. We had those before in the United States. Uh, civil society can do a great deal. I have friends who are holding uh, they're holding discussions in their communities. They're going to uh, parent-teachers associations. They're going to, and, and, and speaking on the issue. They're actually going to universities and, and, and making uh, presentations. Uh, the American Bar Association is getting involved in, in getting better educating the lawyers of America. Action in these circles plays a big role in the fight. And from the grassroots level... We need to get back to where we were in terms of educating our own government officials. When I say where we were, it was during the Cold War. You had those courses in our, our higher education institutions within the Department of Defense at the uh, what is now called the George Schultz Center, the Foreign Service Academy in Arlington, Virginia. You had courses like that. Go look at the curriculum now, you don't. Kershanik adds. We need to have a national strategy. Taiwan needs to have a national strategy. And from there, the steps can build on each other. Building a strategy, it's education, it's passing the laws that are needed to prosecute, to, and building other non-governmental organizations, not necessarily NGOs, but organizations that will name and shame. And America is getting better at that. 
You need to name and shame United Front organizations in the U.S. and globally. Once those steps are in place, the U.S. can begin fortifying itself. But it must begin from an individual level. From there, it can spread upwards through society to the higher reaches of government. If that doesn't happen, experts warn that America will continue to crumble from within without the Chinese regime needing to lift a finger. Coming up, we turn to today's news. What does Shanghai's lockdown easing look like so far? The city center still resembles no man's land, as more than half of the residents are still confined to their homes. Catch a glimpse after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Shanghai authorities say that the city is starting to get back to normal. But more than half of its 26 million residents are still living under lockdown, while the other half is subject to restrictions. Here's more. After nearly two months in lockdown, some residents in Shanghai can now leave their homes to go shopping with restrictions. Some were given passes to purchase food on Thursday, though only one person per household is allowed out at one supermarket. Shoppers were instructed to line up at the store's entrance, standing six feet apart, and have to show their shopper passes before they could enter. The passes allowed one person from each household to enter the store for a maximum of 40 minutes and spend up to $74. They were told to walk or ride a bicycle to get there and back, since buses are still shut down. At another market, only 50 people were let in at a time. Stall owners were mandated to take one PCR test and one antigen test daily. And the area was also disinfected three times a day. Beyond food markets, customers out of one barber shop must make reservations in advance with only two customers allowed in at a time. And what happens when the barbershop owner lives in a neighborhood still under lockdown? Clips caught people lining up at the edge of one neighborhood just for a haircut. Demand for a trim was so high, the long waiting line continued after sundown. Despite the restrictions, the allowances still mark a big change for life in the city. Over 15 million of Shanghaiers are still confined inside areas labeled as prevention zones and are not yet allowed to leave the house. That number makes up more than half of the city's population. Videos taken at the city's center show it still looks more like a ghost town than the heart of a normally bustling financial hub. There's a mass exodus happening in Shanghai. With lockdown orders lifting, many are looking to make a great escape from the city. But flights leaving the financial hub are getting canceled. And some passengers have been stranded at the airport for weeks, afraid to leave the airport out of fear that lockdown orders could stop them from getting back. Let's zoom in on what's happening. Shanghai's Pudong International Airport is one of the largest in the world. Before the pandemic, about 200,000 passengers flew in and out from this airport daily. But now, under China's strict COVID-19 prevention policy, most of its flights are canceled. As a result, many passengers are choosing to camp out at the airport while waiting for the next available plane. That's as departing flights have been repeatedly canceled on short notice. 
Some would-be travelers have stayed in the building for over a month. But why set up camp in a terminal? For many, even if they have somewhere to stay in Shanghai, lockdown measures could prevent them from getting back to the airport. That's with buses and subways shut down, various checkpoints scattered through the city, and the need for a recent virus test in order to get around. Chinese media outlets report that the cancellations mainly impact domestic flights. International flights are rarely canceled on short notice. According to passengers' posts on social media, most of those stuck at the airport are unprepared. Some are lucky enough to claim padded chairs. Others sleep on yoga mats, suitcases, blankets, or coats. Those who are able to board flights have been seen giving their makeshift provisions to those just arriving at the airport. What's more, airport stores are closed. Staff are selling packs of dry ramen noodles with a limit of two packs per person per day. One high school student likened eating it day after day to torture. Aside of food, personal hygiene is also a problem. There's nowhere to buy toothpaste, soap, shampoo, or other products at the airport. So for those who didn't pack them, cleanliness has become difficult to maintain. Despite those conditions, they stay put, checking the flight schedule daily and booking new tickets to leave. Air travel isn't the only method desperate travelers are looking to. Back on the ground, massive crowds have packed Hongqiao train station in Shanghai, one of the city's largest railway hubs. The hordes of travelers all had one thing in common, a desire to leave the metropolis. Shanghai officially announced Monday that its lockdown policy would gradually lift starting the week of May 16th. On Monday, public transportation remained stagnant. But that didn't stop the hopeful passengers from flowing in. People were still making their way to the station as of 4 a.m. local time, with some seen sleeping in the streets along the way. After moving more than 6,000 passengers out of Shanghai, the station closed its services at 5 p.m. To handle the huge traffic, additional train trips were added to the schedule, jumping from 4 to 12 trips. But tickets to ride have been hard to come by. Ticket scalpers have taken advantage of the soaring demand, dramatically increasing ticket prices. And not everyone could cope with the added cost. Many had already used up their savings while stranded in Shanghai under lockdown. The problem prompted some to take travel into their own hands. One man built a raft out of foam so he and his dog could sail to his hometown, located hundreds of miles from Shanghai. Another bought a used car and drove thousands of miles to northeast China. Shanghai is China's largest city by population and has always been known as the economic center of the country. Moving to Shanghai has been the goal for many an aspiring professional for years. But under the Chinese Communist Party's draconian zero-COVID-19 policy, the city has been locked up for nearly two months. And public outcry has little effect. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Every once in a while, something comes along so masterful, it leaves you in awe. So inspiring, it changes your life. So beautiful, you wish it would never end. When that happens, it's something not to be missed. Shen Yun, 
an all-new production every year. The performance was enchanting. I feel better about the world. I feel uplifted. It touches you. It really does. The expertise of the dancers was really, really strong. To know that it was live music was really fantastic. We didn't want to miss this. Make sure you see it. Have to come. Life-changing.